On a cold November day, Jose Robinson Palacios went to his immigration and customs enforcement check-in. He's from Honduras and is seeking asylum in the United States. The ICE check-in was in Cedar Rapids. Former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro and about 20 people were there to support this asylum seeker. We're just putting our hands over Jose, ponemos nuestras manos sobre Jose. We're going to pray for him, rezamos por él. That day, officers removed the GPS ankle bracelet that Robinson Palacios says made him feel like a criminal. He spoke through an interpreter. The, the truth is, today was a day that I, I, I couldn't have hoped for. All this support. Thank you so much for the support, and thank you to Secretary Julian Castro for the support. Robinson Palacios is still appealing his asylum case, but he says being free of the GPS tracker feels like a kind of justice. Castro says he deserves more than that. Uh, Jose and his family is simply seeking a better life in this country, no different from generations of people who have come to this country from different places uh, throughout our nation's history. Asylum seekers are just one example of those going through the immigration process. Millions of people across the country are in limbo. And Democratic candidates are pushing for broader reforms to the country's immigration system. From the newsroom of Iowa Public Radio, this is Caucus Land. I'm Kate Payne. I'm Clay Masters. From the day he launched his presidential campaign, President Donald Trump stoked fear about immigration at the southern U.S. border. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Now, in the run-up to 2020, the Democrats who want to challenge him are running against his messages and actions in office. We're going to end that fear. We're going to pass comprehensive immigration reform. Immigration does not make America weaker. It makes America stronger. Here in Iowa, immigrants are helping rural communities grow. It's no secret that we are a nation of immigrants. We're a state of immigrants. If everybody were to get papers tomorrow, that's awesome. But does that mean that they're going to have access to higher education? Does that mean that they're going to be able to pay for it? We'll talk about how the Democrats are discussing immigration with Iowa Public Radio's Katie Pikus. And later, a look at a candidate who's been campaigning in Iowa longer than anyone else this cycle. Caucus Land is sponsored by Cornell College and by Gravitate Coworking, providing flexible workspace for freelancers, remote workers, teams, or anyone sending emails from a couch or a coffee shop, including those in Iowa for the caucuses. With premier co-working spaces in downtown Des Moines and Historic Valley Junction. Learn more at gravitatecoworking.com. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. The following candidates for United States citizenship have been examined by an officer of the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. On a late September morning at the World Food and Music Festival in Des Moines, nearly 150 people from countries around the world became new citizens. Burundi. An immigration officer read off the countries of origin of the new citizens. Congo, Kinshasa. Naturalization ceremonies are held as the final step for people becoming U.S. citizens. It is with great pride that I welcome you into the American family. A video message from President Trump played for the crowd. You have pledged allegiance to America, and when you give your love and loyalty to America, she returns her love and loyalty to you. 
A judge handed out naturalization certificates to each of these new U.S. citizens. Ben Chica. There was a lot of joy and celebration. People hugged their families. Some took selfies with the judge. I'm so happy. <laughs> Biak Takio is originally from Burma. I'm so happy to become an American citizen. It's always my dream to become one. And thank you, American. This moment is the end of a very long legal process that is still out of reach for millions of immigrants in this country. Politicians have been talking about comprehensive immigration reform for decades, but Democrats and Republicans haven't been able to agree on what that means. There are some 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States, and there's a massive backlog in the courts. Democrats running for president call the system broken, and they're offering solutions. Iowa Public Radio's Katie Pikus has been digging into their proposals, and she joins us now. Katie, how are they proposing to fix it? Well, President Donald Trump has taken a lot of executive actions on immigration, like building a wall at the southern border and drastically cutting refugee admissions. Now, the Democratic candidate's first order of business is to undo those. They want to stop detaining immigrants in a way that they describe as cruel and inhumane. And they especially criticize the border wall, which is one of President Trump's signature campaign promises. During the Democratic ABC debate in September, entrepreneur Andrew Yang talked about his father immigrating from Taiwan. I am the opposite of Donald Trump in many ways. He says, build a wall. I'm going to say to immigrants, come to America, because if you come here, your son or daughter can run for president. The water is great, and this is where you want to build a company, build a family, and build a life. This country has been a magnet for human capital for generations. If we lose that, we lose something integral to our continued success, and that is where I would lead as president. Most of the candidates want to put the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. on a pathway to citizenship. This is a process many can't apply for right now. Those who came to the U.S. without permission would have to go back to their country of origin and in some cases wait outside of the United States 10 years before they could return to the U.S. with lawful status. So waiting 10 years just to apply for citizenship, and then that review process can take years too, right? That's right. And there are so many families in limbo feeling unable to access this process. Some have mixed immigration status, making it even more complicated, like kids who are citizens but their parents aren't. And they're trying to make a living in this country, sometimes under the table. We saw workers in the eastern Iowa city of Mount Pleasant targeted by an immigration raid in 2018. Right. And this was a situation where 32 workers were arrested at this concrete manufacturing plant. Now, this was a traumatic event for these families uh, with these men who were jailed, some of them deported. Many lost a father or a primary breadwinner in the family. Iowa Public Radio spoke with people affected a year after that raid. Katie, what did they say? We talked to Julieta. Her last name is being withheld to protect her privacy. Her husband was one of the workers detained, and she said they were struggling to take care of their two kids since he hasn't been able to work. We tried to to work hard because we have family, we have kids, we want the better life for the kids, you know. It's the same like like American people want this, the same for their family. We obviously want the same, you know. So that that's why the reason... I mean, that's why we are here, you know, for that reason, for our kids. 
Immigrants have come and made a home in big cities and small towns in Iowa. They're employed, they're opening small businesses, working as doctors, professors, and engineers. And they're working in some of the state's major industries like agriculture, meatpacking, and manufacturing. Not all of them are documented. So the rest of the country is becoming more diverse. Minority populations are growing. What are we seeing in Iowa? Well, let's use Storm Lake in northwest Iowa as an example. It's a city of around 11,000. Today, nearly 40% of the city's population is Hispanic or Latino. In the local elementary school, 87% of the kids are not white. I talked with Amelia Marroquin about how Storm Lake is growing and changing because of immigration. She's a school board member. We are growing. We, we are having, we're facing right now a big issue with housing and space in the school district because we are growing so much. But she says that growth is a good thing for the city. There is people from different backgrounds, different languages, and even though they don't speak no English at all, we make it happen, we make it work, uh, we, we make people feel um, home and comfortable, and we try to help them as much as we can. We're also seeing the business community become more outspoken. Iowa business leaders recently said they want Congress to expand paths to citizenship, right? Yes, and at a time when Iowa's unemployment is so low, employers are desperate for workers. Chambers of Commerce and executives put together what they call the Iowa Compact on Immigration. They called on the state's congressional delegation to act on immigration reform. Tom Hughes owns a landscaping business in Cedar Rapids. He says people in his industry have been asking Congress to act for decades. Earlier this year, he spoke with IPR about how important immigrants are to his work. What happens is in the agriculture sector, um, there's just not available workers. And we as an industry can put out a, a want ad, um, and we may have anywhere from five, some businesses have five jobs opening, some have 50 jobs opening, and they may get two or three applicants, and that's it. And so the opportunity to just have someone, and when we can use an immigrant that is there looking to just better themselves, and they can come into America, and they can see these um, a huge step up and a great opportunity for them. So it really is a benefit both ways. So, Katie, you've been talking with new citizens about immigration. What have they been telling you is important to them as they become new caucus goers? Well, I talked to Vanessa Marcano-Kelly. She's a Des Moines resident, a certified interpreter, and a freelance translator. She became a U.S. citizen just this year. She's from Venezuela originally, and she told me she wants to see a candidate that focuses on comprehensive immigration reform, but also on addressing why people are leaving their countries and coming to the U.S. We need to be asking that question, why are people coming in droves? Why is there a crisis at the border right now of refugees and asylum seekers? Marcano Kelly also says even if immigrants get a green card or a work visa or any sort of documentation, there are still challenges they face. They need support integrating into society. If everybody were to get papers tomorrow, that's awesome. That's great. But... Um, does that mean that they're going to have access to higher education? Does that mean that they're going to be able to pay for it? Does that mean that they're going to be able to go and get jobs that aren't, you know, as temps or part of the gig economy or that their rights are going to be heard or that they're going to have benefits? And I should note that she's endorsed Senator Bernie Sanders. At a Latino forum in Des Moines, he said the U.S. needs to bring the hemisphere together to discuss how countries can improve people's lives in Latin America. People would rather stay in their own countries, with their own families, with their own language, rather than travel 1,500 miles. So what are the Democratic presidential candidates saying their comprehensive immigration plans would actually do? 
Well, they are focused on getting undocumented people on a pathway to citizenship. Some want to look at why people are fleeing their countries and address those issues. But a lot of the plans that are on the candidates' websites are pretty reactive to President Trump. And that definitely shows up when they're speaking at events and with reporters. Here's Senators Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. The first immediate change is to stop separating kids from their parents at the border, and you can do that without uh, passing a bill. And Donald Trump has cut legal immigration in this country. It is time to expand legal immigration. So that's part one. We're together on this. It's one thing to disagree with President Trump, but what are some of the contrasts among this field? Well, we saw dating back to the first debate that there was this rift between how the candidates felt about decriminalizing illegal border crossings. Secretary Julian Castro says this should be a civil offense, you know, like getting a parking ticket instead of a criminal offense. My plan also includes getting rid rid of Section 1325 of the Immigration and Nationality Act to go back to the way we used to treat this when somebody comes across the border, not to criminalize desperation, to treat that as a civil violation. And, and here's why it's important. We see all of this horrendous family separation. They use that law, Section 1325, to justify under the law separating little Thank children you. from their families. Jose, and so I want to challenge just, every single candidate on this stage to support the repeal of Section 1325. Jose, I, 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 Many agree with Castro that they would not treat this as a crime. But on the other side, there's Senator Michael Bennett, Joe Biden, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, former Congressman John Delaney, and Senator Klobuchar. They say that there should be some criminal penalties. We had another moment of conflict on immigration during the September debates when Biden was called out for the deportations that happened under the Obama administration. How did that play out? Well, in the first two years of the Obama administration, they deported more than 800,000 immigrants. And after eight years, there were three million deportations. But Biden deflected when he was asked if the Obama administration had made a mistake. This is the president who came along with the DACA program. No one had ever done that before. This is the president who sent a legislation to the desk saying he wants to find a pathway for the 11 million undocumented in the United States of America. This is the president who's done a great deal. So I'm proud to have served with him. The Obama administration prioritized deporting people who recently crossed the border, convicted criminals, and people who are a national security threat. Most of the field has said they would not put a focus on people who recently crossed the border. But South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Bennett, and Yang have said they'd stand by this Obama-era policy. For Biden, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, and Senator Kamala Harris, it's not clear where they stand on this. But there are aspects of the Obama administration legacy that this field is supportive of. I mean, I think of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, that immediately comes to mind. Yeah, so this is an Obama-era program where people brought to the country as kids who are now without status are allowed to get a work permit. They are temporarily protected from being deported. Obama set this with an executive branch memorandum. It's similar to an executive order. And we should note here that while many of these Democratic candidates are campaigning here in Iowa, DACA has been back in the courts and in the news. Right. The Trump administration has challenged DACA. The Supreme Court is reviewing it now. But Democratic presidential candidates say they want to protect these people, known as dreamers, and put them on a pathway to citizenship. Some candidates say they also want protections in place for their families. Here's Buttigieg speaking with reporters about it in Sioux City. And from the executive action we'll take uh, right away, Uh, to restore DACA to the legislative action we've got to take in order to make sure it's uh, uh, not vulnerable to uh, executive uh, or or judicial changes and uh, make sure that we're actually creating that pathway to citizenship for the long term. All of that needs to be part of the plan. 
So another issue we hear a lot about from caucus goers is the practice of separating children from their parents as they're traveling over the southern border. What's the status there? Yeah, so that practice stems from a so-called zero-tolerance policy set by the Trump administration. Under this rule, the Department of Justice worked to criminally prosecute as many people who illegally crossed the border as possible, including parents who came with their children. By law, the Justice Department can't hold children in jail while their parents are being criminally prosecuted, so that's why we had all of these kids and parents being detained separately. And Trump administration officials have said family separation was meant to deter them from coming to the U.S., that it was meant to send a message. Yeah, and there was a ton of backlash to this from pediatricians and immigrant advocates. Ultimately, the Trump administration rescinded this policy in 2018, but reporting shows the practice is still happening at some scale. And kids are still being detained as the government tries to reunite them with families. That includes kids who crossed the border by themselves. So how are the Democrats addressing this on the trail? Well, they're very reactive in saying this is cruel or inhumane or it doesn't reflect our country's values. Several have visited detention facilities at the border and describe conditions like children being kept in cages or nursing mothers in cages. Ending family separation and unnecessary detention are two big things some say they would focus their executive orders on at the beginning of their presidency. Here's Senator Warren reacting after she described the conditions of a detention center she visited. We need to treat people at the border with dignity. We need to listen to them. We need to end the private detention centers. No one should be making a profit of locking people up. Another issue is that there is this massive backlog in the immigration court system nationwide that's keeping a lot of people in limbo as far as their status. Katie, what does this backlog look like? Well, data shows that backlog was nearly a million cases in late September 2019. Susie Pritchett is a law professor at Drake University in Des Moines. She has experience in immigration law and used to work behind the scenes clerking for federal courts and immigration judges. We talked about how this backlog affects immigrants trying to plead their cases. If we think about what does due process look like, what does it look like to kind of understand what your legal status is here in the United States, I think having to wait two or three years um, for your your case to be heard is, is really difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, having to wait two or three years. Katie, in this current system, how is that affecting people's cases? Well, Clay, resources are tight. For example, there are only three immigration judges assigned to immigration court in Omaha, Nebraska. And this is the court that everyone in Iowa and Nebraska have to go to for their hearings. So those workers we heard about earlier in Mount Pleasant in southeast Iowa, they're having to drive clear across the state to go to their hearings. And so with this backlog, is Congress working to address this? Well, there's not any movement right now by Congress to address the backlog in the courts, but we are seeing lots of push from immigration lawyers and other advocates who want immigration court itself to be reworked. They want an immigration court that is separate from the Department of Justice so that it can be more impartial and independent. A few of the candidates are proposing this idea. Susie Pritchett says these proposals would help a lot. And I think those ideas would go a long way as well to impacting non-citizens attempting to make their way through the immigration system and being afforded um, what looks like due process in our system. In 2013, the Senate passed a bill that would have paved the way for a pathway to citizenship for many undocumented immigrants, but that bill died in the House, right? Yeah, and six years later, Congress still can't agree on any sort of modern comprehensive immigration reform. 
Between the Obama and Trump administrations, the change we're seeing on immigration is through executive actions, which can be tossed out in the courts. So when are we going to see real action from Congress? Well, let's look at it this way. It was 1965 when they passed the Immigration and Nationality Act. Before then in the 1920s, the U.S. immigration system limited the number of immigrants through a strict national origins quota system. This seemed to favor some nations over others. Then we saw a shift away. In 1965, the national origins quota was repealed and the U.S. allowed for more immigration from across the globe. Now let's fast forward to 1986. This seemed to be the last sweeping change to the system. President Ronald Reagan signed a bill into law that increased enforcement but also gave amnesty to some unauthorized immigrants and allowed them to apply for status. So there really hasn't been much change since then. No, not really, but there is an urgency among Latinos. The League of United Latin American Citizens, or LULAC, says Latinos could be the largest group of minority voters in the U.S. for the next election. So here's their goal. Register thousands of more voters before the Iowa caucuses. And if that happens, it would be enough to make one in every four caucus-goers Latino. Okay, Iowa Public Radio's Katie Pikus. Thank you. Thanks. Caucus Land is sponsored by Cornell College and by Gravitate Coworking, providing flexible workspace for freelancers, remote workers, teams, or anyone sending emails from a couch or a coffee shop, including those in Iowa for the caucuses, with premier co-working spaces in downtown Des Moines and Historic Valley Junction. Learn more at gravitatecoworking.com. Are you enjoying this episode of Caucus Land? Find more stories about the candidates and learn about their positions on the issues. Stay up to date on the race to the White House by going online to iowapublicradio.org 2020. Your support makes Caucus Land possible. Take a few minutes and donate to IPR. Whether it's $5, $10, or more, your gift is an investment in high-quality journalism. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. Let's go back to a scene from an earlier episode, the one about the Iowa State Fair. This is what I think really simple. A lot of these ideas could not get a majority of Democrats in the Congress. That's former Maryland Congressman John Delaney talking with a fairgoer. A mother and son were eating lunch when they happened to see the presidential candidate's interaction. See, I never, I never watched I, I've never heard him, only this one right here. Delaney has been running for the Democratic presidential nomination for years. He's been coming to Iowa for years, but he remains in the low single digits in polls. He hasn't been on the debate stage since the summer. We've been seeing John Delaney pop up at events since the beginning of 2018. He visited all 99 counties before much of the rest of the field had officially declared. This was the third time he'd campaigned at the Iowa State Fair. This is what candidates are supposed to do, hold events all over the state and keep coming back. Yet Delaney is not catching on. It got us wondering, can you overdo Iowa? We called up Christopher Hull. He used to teach at Georgetown and published a book in 2007 called Grassroots Rules, How the Iowa Caucus Helps Elect Presidents. You know, on average, the more time that uh, a candidate spends in Iowa, the better that the candidate does. However... Very high levels of time in Iowa are often highly correlated with signs, other signs of weakness. 
like low name ID or not enough money to run ads. In Delaney's case, he's got the funding to put ads on social media and television. In November, he started running 30-minute-long infomercials on local stations. But Hull says these low polling numbers show there's just something missing. It isn't necessarily because of the amount of time that they're spending there. It is because they're trying to use time in Iowa to compensate for other weaknesses, and it doesn't always work. Hull says it has worked in the past, like for Jimmy Carter in 1976 and Dick Gephardt in 1988. These early states tend to get a lot of physical, you know, a lot of uh, face time with the candidates. But that is a downside. If you are not presidential, then you're projecting weakness. As Hull writes in his book, think about it this way. If two candidates are just as popular, but candidate A has been in the state two times as much as candidate B, that's a sign of weakness for candidate A. So, you know, pressing the flesh isn't going to help any if you do not bring the kind of presidential demeanor um, and interpersonal skills uh, that other caucus winners have exhibited. How does Delaney see it? We asked him at a meeting with reporters after a multi-candidate event in Des Moines in November. How do you finish well in Iowa without being on the next debate stage? You know, again, it depends. First of all, it's all expectations, right? So life is about how you do relative to expectations. So the expectations for my campaign are not particularly high right now. So if I do better than expected, which doesn't mean winning Iowa, but performing in a way where you all say, wow, that's a surprise result. If rural Iowa delivers for me because I'm talking about their issues, then that I think will change anything, and then I'll be on the debate stage after that. Hull says Delaney is playing it safe by focusing on a more moderate platform, but South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg seems to be dominating that lane. In the latest Des Moines Register CNN Mediacom Iowa poll, zero respondents named Delaney as their first choice. But here's the thing. Delaney is a millionaire. Unlike some of the others running, he doesn't have another elected office to get back to. So at this point, he has no reason to stop campaigning. So we'd expect him to hang in there right until February 3rd. Now, an update on who's in the Democratic race. We've gained one. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick got into the race in November. He's a Harvard-educated lawyer and a private equity executive, and now the latest person to ask Iowans to caucus for them. With his political roots in New England, Patrick is planning to make a go of the New Hampshire primary. But on a visit to Cedar Rapids, he says he's planning on running in Iowa, too. I know that the other campaigns have been here a long time. They raised a lot more money and they made a lot more friends. Um, I'm re- I have to respect the, uh, the calendar um, uh, and be realistic about that, but I would not want anyone in Iowa to think that I was not respecting Iowans. Back to that November Iowa poll published in the Des Moines Register, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg was at the top. This closely watched poll indicates Buttigieg is significantly expanding his support in the state. 25 percent, that's one in four likely Democratic caucus goers, list Buttigieg as their first choice. That's a 16 percent bump for him since the newspaper's previous poll in September. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren has slipped to second place with 16 percent, followed by former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, both with 15 percent. The margin of error in that poll is 4.4 percent, but it showed while more Iowans say they've made up their minds, nearly two-thirds of likely Democratic caucusgoers say they can be persuaded to pick someone else. This indicates the race is still largely open. 
We're still collecting stories from the Iowa campaign trail for our Only in Iowa series. Give us a call if you had a strange or funny encounter during caucus season. Maybe it happened during this cycle, or maybe it's a story from a long time ago. We'd love to hear it. Give us a call, 888-893-2036, and tell us how to get a hold of you in a voicemail. You can also email us at caucusland at iowapublicradio.org or tweet using the hashtag OnlyInIowa. This episode of Caucus Land was produced by me, Kate Payne, Clay Masters, Katie Pikus, and John Pemble. Our music was composed by Garrett Schmid and performed by Garrett and Aaron James. We also get help from our digital team, Matt Searin and Lindsay Moon. Our news director is Michael Leland and our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. Subscribe to Caucus Land wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and share the show. Caucus Land is a production of Iowa Public Radio.